Chapter Ten of Thomas Wingfold, Curate, by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, The Dwarfs. The moment they had passed them, George turned to his cousin with a countenance which bore moral indignation mingled with disgust. The healthy instincts of the elect of his race were offended by the sight of such physical failures, such mockeries of humanity as those. The woman was little, if anything, over four feet in height. She was crooked, had a high shoulder, and walked like a crab, one leg being shorter than the other. Her companion walked quite straight with a certain appearance of dignity, which he neither assumed nor could have avoided, and which gave his gait the air of a march. He was not an inch taller than the woman, had broad, square shoulders, pigeon breast, and invisible neck. He was twice her age, and they seemed father and daughter. They heard his breathing, loud with asthma, as they went by. "'Poor things,' said Helen, with cold kindness. "'It is shameful,' said George, in a tone of righteous anger. "'Such creatures have no right to existence. The horrid mannequin!' "'But, George,' said Helen, in expostulation, "'the poor wretch can't help his deformity.' "'No, but what right had he to marry and perpetuate such odious misery?' "'You are too hasty.' The young woman is his niece. She ought to have been strangled the moment she was born for the sake of humanity. Monsters ought not to live. Unfortunately, they have all got mothers, said Helen, and something in her face made him fear he had gone too far. Don't mistake me, dear Helen, he said. I would, I would neither starve nor drown them after they had reached the faculty of resenting such treatment. Of the justice of which, he added, smiling, I am afraid it would be hard to convince them. But such people actually marry. I, I have known cases. And that ought to be provided against by suitable enactments and penalties. And, and so, rejoined Helen, because they are unhappy already, you would heap unhappiness upon them? Now, Helen, you must not be unfair to me any more than to your hunchbacks. It is the good of the many I seek, and surely that is better than the good of the few. What I object to is that it should be at the expense of the few who are least able to bear it. The expense is trifling, said Bascom. Grant that it would be better for society that no such, or rather put it this way, grant that it would be well for each individual that goes to make up society that he were neither deformed, sickly, nor idiotic. And you mean the same that I do. A given space of territory under given conditions will always maintain a certain number of human beings. Therefore, such a law as I propose would not mean that the number drawing the breath of heaven should, to take the instance before us in illustration, be two less, but that a certain two of them should not be such as he or she who passed now, creatures whose existence is a burden to them. But such as you and I, Helen, 
who may say without presumption that we are no disgrace to nature's handicraft. Helen was not sensitive. She neither blushed nor cast down her eyes, but his tenets thus expounded had nothing very repulsive in them, so far as she saw, and she made no further objection to them. As they walked up the garden again, through the many lingering signs of a more stately, if less luxurious existence than that of their generation, she was calmly listening to a lecture on the ground of law, namely the resignation of certain personal rights for the securing of other more important ones. She understood, was mildly interested, and entirely satisfied. They seated themselves in the summer-house, a little wooden room under the down-sloping boughs of a huge cedar, and pursued their conversation, or rather Bascom pursued his monologue. A lively girl would in all probability have been bored to death by him, but Helen was not a lively girl, and was not bored at all. Ere they went into the house, she had heard, amongst a hundred other things of wisdom, his views concerning crime and punishment, with which, good and bad, true and false, I shall not trouble my reader, except in regard to one point, that of the obligation to punish. Upon this point he was severe. No person, he said, ought to allow any weakness of pity to prevent him from bringing to punishment the person who broke the laws upon which the well-being of the community depended. A man must remember that the good of the whole and not the fate of the individual was to be regarded. It was, altogether, a notable sort of tete-a-tete -tete between two such perfect specimens of their race, and as at length they entered the house, they professed to each other to have much enjoyed their walk. Holding the opinions he did, Bascom was in one thing inconsistent. He went to divine service on the Sunday with his aunt and cousin, not to humor Helen's prejudices, but those of Mrs. Ramshorn, who, belonging, as I have said, to the profession, had strong opinions as to the wickedness of not going to church. It was of no use, he said to himself, trying to upset her ideas, for to succeed would only be to make her miserable, and his design was only to make the race happy. In the grand old abbey, therefore, they heard together morning prayers, the litany, the communion, all in one after a weariful and lazy modern custom not yet extinct, and then a dull, sensible sermon, short and tolerably well-read, on the duty of forgiveness of injuries. I dare say it did most of the people present a little good, undefinable as the faint influences of starlight, to sit under that high embowed roof, with that vast artistic isolation, through whose mighty limiting the boundless is embodied, and we learn to feel the awful infinitude of the parent space out of which it is scooped. I dare also say that the tones of the mellow old organ spoke to something in many of the listeners that lay deeper far than the plummet of their self-knowledge had ever sounded. 
I think also that the prayers, the reading of which in respect of intelligence was admirable, were not only regarded as sacred utterances, but felt to be soothing influences by not a few of those who made not the slightest effort to follow them with their hearts. And I trust that on the whole their church-going tended rather to make them better than to harden them. But as to the main point, the stirring up of the children of the highest to lay hold of the skirts of their father's robe, the waking of the individual conscience to say, I will arise, and the strengthening of the captive will to break its bonds and stand free in the name of the eternal creating freedom, for nothing of that was there any special provision. This belonged, in the nature of things, to the sermon, in which, if anywhere, the voice of the indwelling spirit might surely be heard, out of his holy temple, if indeed that be the living soul of man, as St. Paul believed. But there was no sign that the preacher regarded his office as having any such end, although in his sermon lingered the rudimentary tokens that such must have been the original intent of pulpit utterance. On the way home, Bascom made some objections to the discourse, partly to show his aunt that he had been attending. He admitted that one might forgive and forget what did not come within the scope of the law. But, as he had said to Helen before, a man was bound, he said, to punish the wrong which through him affected the community. George, said his aunt, I differ from you there. Nobody ought to go to the law to punish an injury. I would forgive ever so many before I would run the risk of the law. But as to forgetting an injury, some injuries at least, no, that I never would. And I don't believe, let the young man say what he will, that that is required of anyone. Helen said nothing. She had no enemies to forgive no wrongs worth remembering, and was not interested in the question. She thought it a very good sermon indeed. When Bascom left for London in the morning, he carried with him the lingering rustle of silk, the odor of lavender, and a certain blueness, not of the sky, which seemed to have something behind it, as never did the sky to him. He had never met a woman so worthy of being his mate, either as regarded the perfection of her form or the hidden development of her brain evident in her capacity for the reception of truth as his own cousin, Helen Lingard. Might not the relationship account for the fact? Helen thought nothing to correspond. She considered George a fine, manly fellow, what bold and original ideas he had about everything. Her brother was a baby to him. But then Leopold was such a love of a boy. Such eyes and such a smile were not to be seen on this side of the world. Helen liked her cousin, was attached to her aunt, but loved her brother Leopold, and loved nobody else. 
his hindu mother high of caste had given him her lustrous eyes and pearly smile which the first moment she saw him won his sister's heart he was then but eight years old and she but eleven since then he had been brought up by his father's elder brother who had taken the family estate in yorkshire but he had spent part of all his holidays with her and they often wrote to each other of late indeed his letters had not been many and a rumour had reached her that he was not doing quite satisfactorily at cambridge but she explained it away to the full contentment of her own heart and went on building such castles as her poor aerolithic skill could command with leopold ever and always as the sharer of her self-expansion End of chapter 10 Reading by John Shorman, Winfield, Illinois